Hey folks, you're listening to To Know the Land, broadcasting from the treaty territories of the Mississauga the Credit on 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Maybe you're listening to your Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to your podcast. It's a show about our connections with the land base, how we learn about the land, how we interact with the land, how we defend the land. My name is Byron, and today I want to study and talk about red-tailed hawk nesting strategies and nests in general. Um, for a couple of years now in the valley that I walk through to get to work and where I do work, where I go out with the kids that I work with and uh, my colleagues, the Aramosa River Valley, uh, there have been red-tailed hawks frequently in the valley hanging out. I remember a couple of years ago for two years, there were two hawks, a male and a female, in the valley who we collectively referred to as Screamer. If you've listened to the show for a while, you've probably heard me talk about them. And they were in the valley for a long time, hanging out, spending time there, and would hunt up on the top of the valley, generally hanging out in uh, spruce trees and white pines at the top of the valley but then also on uh, adjacent to the valley walls in tall poplars or maples. And every morning I would walk by and they would scream and fly away. And this kept happening all the time. And maybe they'd move further down the trail so I'd encounter them again on my walk. And they would scream and fly away. And they were very vocal, these, this pair and more vocal than any other pair that I encountered, I have encountered before or since. So they got the name Screamer. When Screamer, when they were around, uh, I would often watch them as they flew off, and I would try and pay attention to where they were going. And whenever I saw them on either side of the valley or on either side of the river, I would try and take note of where they were landing and sometimes I could, and I would go to that spot with the kids that day just to look around. But I've never, I never noticed a nest, either because it was just outside the valley or just outside of reach to go with a group of kids. And uh, I was usually busy with those kids primarily. Couldn't just drop the kids off or make them chase these hawks around with me. So that became just like, a fun exercise in paying attention to these hawks, watching them, seeing how they fly, listening to them, noting differences in body size, but never really noticing a nest. On Monday, so this would be uh, Monday, April 3rd, I went out with a group and we were looking at the river and we, wa we watched uh, a bunch of buffalo heads uh, some common mergansers, hood mergansers, and even saw an American coot, which is not the most common thing to see around, but it was it was still neat to see and hard to recognize um, who they were. I was thinking all sorts of other birds. But um, yeah, as we were moving along, we, we saw these birds. We went off to the Ontario, the old Ontario reformatory lands where there's hand-dug ponds where a lot of birds uh, have a little stopover and we saw a loon, lots of geese as per usual, warmer gansers, more buffalo heads. Um, but then we got a call over the radio from a colleague, Matt, and Matt had said that he found two red tails and he was uh, thinking that they were building a nest and he was watching what he thought was them building a nest. And we were very excited. This is this is something that few of us have seen before, few of us got the chance to witness. Like I said, I'd been watching for years with Screamer, but never seen. Um, and then I think a little bit later, Matt called again saying he'd been watching them, he's sure they're building a nest, and he just watched them mate. And so that was just awesome and incredible. And Matt's a pretty dedicated birder. This is 
we have two Mets who are pretty dedicated birders at work. Matt Hamilton was the one that made these calls. And he's been learning a lot about, uh, I think mostly broad wings um, in the area, or maybe rough leggeds. I'm not sure what his focus has been, but he's been going out often, doing a lot of work, trying to pay attention to these to these hawks and just take notice of who they are, what they're doing and where they're going. And it's been great to learn from him and all of his insights. Uh, same with the other Matt, Matt Isles, who's been on the show before. And I just appreciate having colleagues that care so much and are so interested and so curious and so passionate about these things so that we can all be learning from each other. And when Matt mentioned that he had seen these nests and he'd seen the birds mating, everybody got excited. We all started paying attention. So uh, the next day, I walked by the area that he had mentioned and I noted uh, a nest or a possible nest, what appeared to be a possible nest, and saw red tails fly over. So I assumed that was the nest and kept walking and then went up to the top of the valley wall where I figured the nest was. And while the kids were off in a field with the other instructors playing, I did a quick detour uh, to check out the nest or see if I could see it from the top side. And I couldn't see it necessarily, but I knew I was close because I looked back, I heard these twigs breaking and I looked back and I saw the red tail above me. Uh, maybe 20, no, 30 feet away, 30 to 40 feet away. And uh, like I said, it sounded like twigs breaking. Maybe they just landed. And I watched them maybe for five to 10 seconds and then realized I should just keep going. So I did. I just didn't look back and just kept going. And then finally, when I got far enough away, I looked back and they were gone. So it was a quick uh, acknowledgement that I was in the right place from the top of the valley, even though I couldn't see the nest. Met back up with the group and they said they just saw the red tail fly in to where I'd seen them. And that was great. Extra confirmation. And then the following day, I was working with Matt Hamilton again. And we decided, let's go out to the direction of the nest and see if we could spot them from the trail. Now, from the trail, it is about 35 to 50 yards. It's hard to tell because it goes slightly a hill goes slightly up hill to the south and on that hillside is where the large maple tree is with the nest in it so it's hard to tell the distance but i'll say 40 40 yards away maybe 45 yards away and um we well no i guess it's 100 yards for a football field maybe 55, 60 yards. And in meters, I'm gonna say similarly, even though they're slightly different, but similarly, maybe on the shorter side, 50 to 55 meters away. So it seems like a good distance. And we, we walked by, we looked at it, we saw uh, first, was it the male that flew off first? Well, one thing I did see, maybe I should say first, on the way to work, I saw them and the male flew off first. And then as I got closer to the nest, the female flew off and they went in different directions. And it reminded me of how when you come across cardinals, the male cardinal flies off to sort of distract and pull your attention away. And then the female sort of goes off later or maybe in a different direction. So the male is using his bright colors to sort of be conspicuous and be, be noticed and to draw the attention away. And I thought this was the same sort of happening with the, with the hawks. But later when we were with the kids, we saw them and they seemed to be working near the nest. And then what I'm assuming is the male went over and landed on a large poplar 
and the female, the larger bird, went over and she landed on the same poplar and we looked over and it looked like there were, she was intentionally trying to break twigs off, which was, you know, very interesting. She was going out to the sort of thinner part of the branch, the most distal part of the branch, I guess, that she would maintain her weight and sort of flap her wings and put one talon, like her right talon out, because she was facing her right talon out as far as she could, flap her wings until snap, and then she'd move back over with that twig in her talon, bend down, grab it with her mouth, and then fly back to the nest. So this twig breaking behavior was pretty cool to see and to, to notice how she was building her nest that way. And then it reminded me of when I saw her the day before, is that what was happening when I heard the sound of breaking twigs behind me? Was she just alighting on that poplar to break a twig? Um, I think it was a trembling aspen um, to, to break the twig and then bring it back to her nest to line the nest with it. And that brings up all sorts of questions for me. It's like, is there, are there qualities in that wood that she's looking for? Is it just easier to break? Probably is just easier to break, but is there anything else going on? Uh, what's the average width or length that they're looking for for twigs? Um, do they want living twigs, dead? Um, I would imagine living because the wood has its own antifungal, antibacterial properties that would keep the nest a little bit cleaner. But all these things I don't know about. Um, but then Matt encouraged us, he said, you know, maybe we should just keep going. The kids were getting mm, antsy and loud and we kept going. And while our noise can be a disturbance, I also think to the train tracks that are between the path and the nest. And it just leads me to believe that our nest, however bothersome and annoying on a heavily used path is not that bad, but we still want to keep that in mind. We don't want to be pushing these birds off. Um, but it just just reminds me that, you know, that there's lots of activity in the area. The birds know what they're doing. There's a train that goes by every couple of hours, uh, a small freight, usually carrying up to 20 cars. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I went back after work on Thursday to possibly see the nest and no activity, no activity while I was there. So I just went off. And then an update from this morning was that Matt had gone out also on Thursday at around noon with another friend of ours, David. And they were looking at the nest, trying to see if there's any sign of occupation, any sign of eggs yet. And I guess they'd gotten mixed up in how they were how they were observing the nest because each was observing a nest. Each, uh, both David and Matt were observing a nest, but not the same nest. So Matt was saying on the phone this morning that possibly uh, the hawks had been building two nests. And I know this is something common in songbirds that they will build multiple nests, and then maybe the female will pick the one that she likes best and then start laying there. So perhaps this is what is happening. I'm, I'm not sure. But um, all of this, all of this background information to say that this is what's informing my questions, my curiosity, my research today, and what I'd like to learn more about as I read about them. And I pulled out a bunch of resources, a bunch of books, and a PDF that I've got printed out. And I'm not going to get to all of them because there's so much here. But I thought I would go through some of them and mention the ones that were good uh, and just share that information with y'all because maybe one of you have found a red-tailed hawk nest that you've been exploring and you want to learn more about. Or maybe you will come across one in the future or maybe even none of you will. And this, this radio show is just for me to learn about it. But at least, you know, Matt and David and my colleagues at work can all listen to it 
and learn more about this nest and learn like maybe what our proper protocols are, what our proper diplomatic protocols are and how we engage and encounter these red tails while they try and raise a family. So I just want to start with naming that a lot of these resources are older. Um, some are newer, but some are older. I think the oldest one I have is 52. Um, and some of the new, like 64. The newest one is probably 2019, or pardon me, 2021. Um, so the information will be changed and different throughout, I'm sure. But I feel like they would all be worth it. So I'm just going to pull from those. And I am just going to focus on nesting and nesting behaviors, not so much courting behaviors. But if I was going to include courting behaviors, I would include Pete Dunn's The Windmasters, The Lives of North American Birds of Prey. Because that book has a beautiful storytelling aspect to describe some of the natural history of many birds of prey in North America. And the the entry on red-tailed hawks is lovely. It's, it's, it's cute. Um, it reminds me of how I like to describe things using our own experiences as humans to relate to others. So not necessarily anthropomorphize, but find the commonality. Maybe it's anthropomorphizing. I don't care. I feel like that's, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to do a whole show on anthropomorphization and why, the the fear of it and the, the why we avoid it or why it's been avoided for so long and how that can get in the way of really getting to know other species. But I think the storytelling uh, method of describing the courtship behaviors of the hawks is beautiful and it tells the story in a really good way. So again, that's the Windmasters. Lives of North American Birds of Prey by Pete Dunn. And as per one of the listeners' requests a couple of weeks ago, I will make notes for whatever bird, whatever books I mention on the show. And then I will um, post links to them or, or at least just a list at the bottom of the show like I do with the blog posts. So in the show notes, it will have the list of the resources that I cite. I'm going to start with Forest Raptors and Their Nests in Central Ontario, A Guide to Sticks Nests and Their Uses by Candide Zuba and Brian Naylor. This was designed and put out by uh, the province of Ontario um, in 1998. And it was, it's a PDF and it's a very good resource. And it just describes the nest in a context of central Ontario, but it's also suitable for southern Ontario. A lot of the same species overlap. So I thought this is a good way to start. But I just wanted to start with one part near the beginning of this, of this booklet that they made. And it's on the sensitivity of raptors. Birds of prey are especially sensitive to disturbance near their nests. The adults may abandon a site if they are disturbed early in the breeding season, especially during nest building. When the adults are flushed from the nest, the eggs or young chicks may be chilled, or older chicks may tumble out. Raccoons, fishers, black bears may follow human trails and eat eggs or chicks. Hawk eggs are also eaten by ravens, and adults and chicks may be killed by great horned owls that have been attracted to the site by noise. To minimize any negative effects you might have on the nest, view it from far away as possible for only a few minutes at a time, and visit it again very infrequently. Do not go right up to the nest tree until the chicks fledge. Leave the nesting area as quickly as possible, especially if the weather is cold or rainy. Nesting success is only naturally lower, pardon me, nesting success is naturally lower if spring and summer are exceptionally cool and wet. So I just want to start with that because uh, these are things that I can learn and I, I get eager, I get excited, I want to see what's going on. So 
my, my desire leads me closer to the nest, as I'm sure it would for a lot of folks. But I, I think it's important that we give the birds some space. Um, I'm going to read their section on Budios and then on red-tailed hawks. Red-tailed hawks spend about a week building their nest, carrying sticks to the nest, usually in their beaks. Old or alternate nest sites tend to accumulate in good territories, up to seven for red-shouldered hawks and broad-winged hawks. An old nest might be reused later. The longest continuous record of territorial occupancy was a red-shouldered hawk nest in the area, nesting the area of Uxbridge, Ontario, that was used for 17 years. A nest in Perry Sound District was used over at least a 13-year period. If a pair returns to an old territory, they may begin decorating the old nest with conifer sprigs as soon as they return, as noted by Dent, 1994, for red-shouldered hawks in southern Ontario. In our experience, fresh decorations suggest that the nest should be checked again for further signs of activity. Dent and some Ontario Ministry of Natural Resource records suggest that more than one nest may be decorated within a territory, but the active nest has much more work done on it. New twigs may be added, and decoration is much thicker around the rim of the active nest. Decoration might be obvious throughout the incubation and chick rearing stages, but it may even be absent as fledgling approaches. Down feathers on the rim mean that incubation in that nest is almost certain, a certainty. The smaller male Budio does most of the hunting while the female incubates the eggs and, the brood, and broods the young until they are a few weeks old. Both parents hunt to supply hungry older chicks. Chicks may hide silently in the nest. Older chicks may call and beg for food in the early morning, which can help observers locate a nest. The chicks can be very, also very noisy for several days after they fledge, following the parents and begging loudly for food. Young red-shouldered hawks fledge at about six weeks of age, usually around late June to mid-July, and may stay near the nest for the next two or three weeks. The parents continue to feed the chicks to varying degrees for up to two months after fledging. Fledglings are able to capture only the smallest play, prey, like insects, until their hunting skills improve. For these perch hunters, reproductive success is thought to vary in part with the availability of perches. This is especially important for the red-tailed hawk and the broadwing hawk. Clear cuts where perches are lacking will not be good red-tailed hawk habitat. Okay. And the section on the red-tailed hawk in particular. Um, yeah, I won't, I won't describe the field marks. I'm assuming that all of you have seen a red-tailed hawk before, the most common bootio in North America. As it says, this is the most common hawk in southern agricultural Ontario. Habitat. Where mature forests and open country meet, nests are usually close to the forest edge in a big opening in a small isolated stand or fence row or an open forest with low stocking or low canopy closure. Old tolerant hardwood, mixed wood, or conifer stands are used providing they contain trees large enough to support the bulky nests. Home range and territory size varies with habitat quality. In agricultural areas with only fragments of forest, active nests of different pairs may be just 500 meters apart, as long as the incubating adults cannot see each other from their own nests. That's cool. Timber cutting, which reduces canopy closure to less than 70%, may enable red tails to replace red-shouldered hawks in small woodlots and in continuous forests. The nests are large, 70 to 150 centimeters in diameter, 40 to 120 centimeters deep. That's the outer diameter and outer, outer depth. Um, bulky nests made with medium and coarse thumb-sized twigs and sticks. Hemlock decoration is often ab abundant. Sometimes pine is used. Usually two-thirds of the way up in the middle of the crown in a secondary fork or on a lateral branch close to the trunk. 
infrequently at the base of the crown in the first main crotch. The nest tree is usually hardwood over 80% of the time, especially maple, beech, oak, ash, but also uses white pine frequently. Nests are reused often. Eggs are dirty white, usually with brown spots. Great. So yeah, bulky nest, coarse twigs and, and sticks, usually two thirds up in the middle of the crown, secondary fork or on a sturdy lateral branch, they say. And again, that's forest raptors and their nests in central Ontario by Candide Zuba and Brian Naylor put out by the government of Ontario. And I'm just making a note so I can make a note for y'all for later. I, I just wanted to see if there's any in the Peterson Field Guide to North American Bird Nests by Casey McFarland, Matthew Mangello, and David Moskowitz. Um, I interviewed Casey McFarland when this book came out. You can find it on the website to knowtheland.com. Um, the information on the red-tailed hawk doesn't change much. It does mention more human structures, power lines, sometimes skyscrapers are noted as red-tailed hawk locations. And I remember doing research on red-tailed hawk nests years ago, probably when trying to find more information about Screamer and their possible nest sites. Someone was doing a study on red-tailed hawk nests on the back of billboards. And so that seems to be a common place as well. And they describe the outside diameter around 71 to 76 centimeters, inside diameter 35 to 37 uh, centimeters, with a depth of 10 to 13 centimeters. So it's not as big as the other book seems to allude to, but that those are the inside, inside diameters rather than the outside, which the other book was alluding to. So good thing to keep in mind. I wanted to read about the nesting behaviors from Life Histories of North American Birds, uh, North American Birds of Prey by Arthur Cleveland Bent. And again, if you've listened to the show ever before, these books, Life History of North American Birds, um, the series by Arthur Cleveland Bent, I think first published in the 30s. Um, and it's, yeah, 1937 was when this one was, was first published. These are amazing. And a lot of a lot of the field guides we have today, there will be small updates as the research improves. But a majority of the information comes from comes from this book, this series. And Arthur Cleveland Bent was started part of like an ornithological society, maybe one of the first in North America, and collected letters and information from naturalists all over North America who were observing birds and his own records and all the other people in the society collecting records, and then consolidated them all, edited them all, organized them all into a series of books. And it, I, slowly I've been finding them at thrift stores and occasionally uh, online and just getting them as I can. And they're very helpful. Um, most recently I got the one on like turkeys and, and rough grouse, I think galliformes or something like that. Um, and these are great books. It's, it's a bit of flowery language and a lot of firsthand accounts. That's how the story that's how the information is shared. But I find them very useful with long entries with lots of text, very few pictures. Don't don't go for these if you're looking for photographs. But for information, these are fantastic. And again, some of the information is out of date, especially uh, the scientific names like the binomial nom nomenclature. But I think it's they're still useful. And you just find the new names anyhow. So, oh, look. there. I guess I was looking up 
I have a bus transfer from December 13th, 2018. And that would make sense for when Screamer was around. So I was probably seeing Screamer in the valley throughout the winter. And then maybe, or maybe you're preparing to see Screamer in the valley throughout the winter. I'm not sure. But that's when this transfer is from. So that's probably when I was looking through this last. Okay. Nesting. My personal experience with nesting habits of the red-tailed hawk in southern Massachusetts have been limited to the study of 19 nests over a period of 40 years, from which it appears that it is not a common bird here. Twice we found two nests in one season, and one year we found three. The local distribution has, has been referred to above. Contrary to the experience of others elsewhere, we have found red-tail much less constant at its attachment to nesting haunts than the red-shoulder. In three cases, we found them at the same patch of woods, but in different nests, for two years in succession, and one for three years. At popular nest, a popular nest at Blue Ridge, 35 feet up in a red oak in mixed woods, on a ridge between an open bog and a maple swamp, was occupied by a red-shouldered hawk in 1920. In 1928, it was occupied by a pair of Broadwind hawks. The following year, a pair of red tails took possession of it and raised a brood of young. In 1930, it remained unused. In 1931, the red tails were back at in it again and raised another brood. But in 1932, it was deserted again. Raising brood successfully did not encourage the hawks to return. Our longest record covers a period of 13 years during which time the very extensive area in Mansfield and Norton in which there are a number of large patches of heavy timber of various kinds, white pines, oaks, and maples interspersed with open bogs, swampy woods, clear lands, and pasture. The red-tailed nest was first discovered by my field companions F.H. and C.S. in 1920. It was in an ideal situation, 54 feet from the ground on horizontal branches against the trunk of a giant white pine that stood at the edge of a grove of heavy pines overlooking an open meadow. We did not find the nest again until 1924 when we discovered it fully a quarter of a mile away. It was 52 feet up in one small group of scattered white pines in an open situation. Two years later, the hawks were back in the old original nest in the, white, in the big pine. This nest remained vacant until 1932 when it was again occupied. I have no doubt that the hawks nested somewhere in that big tract during all the intervening years, for we often saw them but were unable to locate the nest in a region so difficult to hunt thoroughly. Mr. Day, who has all the eggs collected from this locality, is convinced that three different females presided over this territory, as shown by the three distinct types of eggs laid. As mentioned above, red-tailed hawks invaded in three successive years three separate localities that had been occupied previously by red-shouldered hawks. I suspect that these three invasions were all made by the same pair of red-tails, as the second and third localities are less than a mile and a half from the first. I'm just going to get, move on. Some of the other information following is not as useful. Do-do-do. Okay, okay, here we go. It says, The nests of red-tailed hawks will average somewhat larger than those of red-shouldered. Typically, nests are from 28 to 30 inches in outside diameter, the inner cavity being 14 to 15 inches wide and 4 to 5 inches deep. The largest nest I have ever measured was 42 inches in longest by 19 inches in the shortest diameter. The nests are usually quite flat and shallow, but one had been added to for an unknown number of years measured three feet high. Dr. H.C.O. In, in 1896 gives a measurement of seven Ohio nests that are somewhat larger than my averages. His largest nest measured 13, 36 inches in height and 48 by 30 inches in outside diameter. The inner cavity was seven inches deep. The nests were all made of sticks and twigs, 
half an inch or less in thickness, neatly lined with strips of inner bark of cedar, grapevine, chestnut, usnea, and usually at least a few green sprigs of pine, cedar, or hemlock. Some nests are profusely and beautifully lined with fresh green sprigs of white pine, which are frequently renewed during incubation and during earlier stages in the growth of the young. I have spent considerable time, with rather meager results, attempting to watch the nest-building activities of these hawks. They stake out their claim in late February or early March, a month before the eggs are deposited, by marking the nest they propose to use with a spring of green pine. Nest-building is a very deliberate process. The bird visits the nest in very infrequently, at very infrequent intervals and are cautious about it. If they suspect that the nest is watched, they will not come near it. In order to watch them successfully, it is necessary to have a blind that offers perfect concealment. A brush blind is utterly useless, as the hawks can see the slightest movement in it, and will not come near the nest again until the intruder departs. I believe that both sexes assist in nest building, though I have not proved it. Old nests sometimes repaired in the autumn the nesting habits of the red-tailed hawk in other parts of its range differ somewhat from the above. It goes on to say that throughout the greater part of its range, the red-tailed hawk seems to have a constant, seems to be more constant in its attachment to this nesting site than what we have found in New England. It often returns year after year to the same patch of woods, as it usually selects the tallest trees it can find. The nest is often at a great height, even over 90 feet from the ground. It does not seem to be at all particular about the choice of tree except as to size. Various pines, oaks, maples, hickories, elms, sycamores, poplars have been used. Small patches of heavy tall timber are preferred, and the nest is usually on or near the edge so that the bird can have a good outlook. And nests are often built in more or less isolated trees in open situations. I believe that the birds prefer to, to build a nest each, a new nest each year, but they sometimes use the same nest for consecutive years, though oftener they return to it for an interval of a year or two. Lewis O'Shelley writes to me that he has known a pair to use the same nest each season for four or five years. Often they appropriate the nest, the nest previously used by another hawk, owl, or crow, or build it on a squirrel's nest. A.W. Brockway tells me that one of his nests was built on top of a gray squirrel's nest, in which he could hear the young squirrel's chatter as he pressed against the nest. For three seasons in succession, J.A. Singley in 1886 found a nest occupied by great horned owls early in the season and later by red-tailed hawks. This was in Texas, where the hawks will lay a second set three or four weeks later, but usually, oh, pardon me. Yeah, if their eggs, if their first set of eggs is taken, the hawks will lay a second set three or four weeks later, but usually another in another nest. Very rarely a third set may be laid. And Ben Deere in 1892 says, on very rare occasions, even a fourth. Again, that was Life Histories of North American Birds of Prey by Arthur Cleveland Bent. There are new editions out on Dover. Um, you don't have to get the one from 1936, the one that I have, which was a reprint from 1962. I think there are maybe even reprints from the 70s or the 80s, but I don't think there have been any reprints since. So they're hard to find that book, but it's it's fairly useful and I skipped over a lot of information there just on the section on nesting um, but I didn't want to to bore you all with too much and I wanted to get to some other resources that offer different information as well um, namely here's the Stokes Nature Guides A Guide to Bird Behavior Volume 3 oh this one has another bus transfer uh, from March 2nd 2020 when I was reading about nest building behavior of the red-tailed hawk. And this is by Donald and Lillian Stokes. 
Nest building. Placement 15 to 90 feet above ground in a deciduous or conifer tree built near the top in crotch of two or more large limbs or where limbs meet trunk. Size, the outside diameter of 28 to 38 inches. Old nests that have been used for years, maybe three or more feet tall. Material, sticks and twigs, half an inch or less in thickness, lined with bark of cedar, grapevine, moss, and a few sprigs of pine, cedar, or hemlock. Sounds like they're just recycling the information from the Arthur Bent book. Red tails are quite secretive about their nest building and often desert their nest if disturbed, if disturbed during this phase. Therefore, it's best to keep a great distance as possible, as is possible from these birds during this time. Try to locate a good vantage point at a distance and watch them through a scope. My friend Matt's buying a scope from my friend Matt, I believe, or at least interested, so maybe that'll be what we'll be doing. The birds may reuse an old nest or build a new one, sometimes using as a base a nest of squirrel or another hawk. Both birds build the nest. They break off twigs from trees and carry them to the nest in their talons. I've seen it in their bills. Uh, the freshly broken off ends of the twigs are visible in the nest and a good indication that the nest was recently built. The nest is lined with shredded bark, pine needles, corn husks, and other material locally available. The birds can complete a nest in a week or less. From the beginning of nest building up until when the young fledge, red tails may deposit green sprigs of leaves or pine needles in the nest. In fact, even before active nest building begins, the pair may deposit sprigs in several old nests. It is not known for sure why they do this, but there are several theories. One being that it provides the young with clean resting places, since the nest gets quite soiled with pellets and bits of food remains that the young haven't eaten. Red-tailed hawks and great horned owls often nest and hunt in similar habitats. The owls do not build nests of their own, and in the season, oh, and therefore often use red-tailed nests. Since they start breeding earlier in the season, the red-tails, they may claim the red-tails' previous year's nest. When the red-tails start to breed, there is no competition over nests with the owls. When a previous nest is occupied by the owl, the red-tail simply finds a new one. In some cases, the great horned owls and red-tails may alternate use of the same nest in successive years. In autumn, the birds may also do some repair to a nest on their territory. So one more time, uh, Stokes Nature Guide's Guide to Bird Behavior by Donald and Lillian Stokes. But that sounds like most of that information I just read in the Life Histories of North American Birds of Prey. I don't mind if these books repeat the same information because if the same information is relevant more so, and it gets repeated, it seems to be probably more reliable, although that's not true with all books and all information. I know there's some information that gets repeated that's actually false. I've read some in like uh, field guides to what foods are edible. But yeah, I, 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 we have to take everything with a grain of salt. And as friends have been saying really frequently a lot lately, um, is that the birds don't read the field guides. They don't know what they are supposed to or not supposed to do, and they just do their own thing anyways. So I'm going to read uh, one more thing, maybe two, one more at least. Birds of Forest, Yard, and Thicket by John Eastman. Um, these are also out of print, but well worth picking up if you can find them. Birds of Forest, Yard, and Thicket. He has three select collections, or three books and a collection on birds, three books and a collection of plants. Get all of them. Get all of them. They're very good books, very useful. I know one of the only other, I don't listen to podcasts much, but one of, one of the other ones that I do listen to is The Field Guides. And you can check out their pod, podcast. It's really good, The Field Guides. If you go back, way back into the show archives, of when I first, not when I first started doing the show, but back maybe 2017, 
2016, I interviewed them. It was a good interview. Um, but yeah, the field guides, that's another great podcast if you're interested, but they also endorse John Eastman as well. And I really like his books. My friend Dev first turned me on to him and they're great. But I'm going to read his section on spring of the Red Tails Ecology. It says, The Red Tails' spectacular courtship flights begin in winter, continue through early spring, and at intervals thereafter. Pairs usually mate for life. Breeding territories average more than a square mile in size, but are often larger. Yearling birds occasionally nest, but most first-time breeders are less than three years old. Often... A pair reoccupies one of several previous nests in March or April, adding fresh material or builds a new nest nearby. Until their eggs hatch, red tails are extremely sensitive to disturbance and may quickly abandon the nest at slight provocation. Incubation begins with the laying of the first egg and thus the eggs hatch in successive intervals. At an older nestling sometimes kills a younger sibling. By late spring, the surviving young become conspicuous by their noisy calling and rambunctious movements in the nest vicinity. Yeah. So, Birds of Forest Yard and Ticket by John Eastman. Stackpole books. So there's all these books. A lot of them are older. Um, there's one more I may read from. Actually, maybe I won't. It's uh, The World of the Red-Tailed Hawk by G. Arnold Austin. And the chapter on, on nesting on, is, is rather long. So I may not, and it might cover a lot of the same information, and it's a bit of storytelling as well. 1964, this book. Um, lots of great black and white photographs. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to get into it too much. Maybe I'll do another show later on on um, the nesting ha or, or, or the juveniles. Maybe in a couple of weeks I can do another show on like the eggs and the juveniles' behavior when they first hatch, drawing on some of these same materials. Because I think that trying to fit in all these, these behaviors of the birds, like trying to fit in months of behavior into a one-hour show i'm not going to get much it's and it's probably hard to pay attention to me reading for so long so i don't want to bore you too much just a little bit so yeah i'm going to keep you all updated though too maybe i can write a blog post maybe i can share some photos on uh, the instagram account at to know the land um and the blog is www dot to know the land.com and i can just share photos that folks are taking um if we if matt brings out that scope that he's thinking about getting or if matt brings it out because he doesn't sell it to matt um then i will show photos from the scope and then people can get an idea of what the nest looks like but if you imagine just a big bulky stick nest you know, that's what it looks like. That's that's what a red tail hawk looks like. I wonder, because it looks like there's two tiers on the nest that we're, I'm talking about. And I've wondered if it was built on top of um, maybe a crow's nest beforehand. Or maybe like a, maybe it was a squirrel drave at one point, And then it was built on top of by another bird. And then another layer built on top of by the red tail. But there does seem to be a little gap between one level of the nest and the other, but I'm only using my monocular, which isn't the most powerful, but it's good enough for me to note the birds and see them from a distance. It's so cool to pay attention, right? To just be watching these, these birds live their life, recognize that they have sensitivities, peculiarities, individualities, and that they are, they they are present. They have personalities. They are they are imminent. They are doing their thing, and always reminds. If we need the reminder, and even if we don't, it always reminds that 
not only are we not alone in this world, but we're just as weird. You know, like all these animals have these weird things and behaviors and things that they do and, and dynamics that go on between them. And maybe through observing, maybe through learning about them, we can learn more about ourselves. And maybe we can decenter ourselves by also learning and observing and watching these behaviors and recognizing that there's beauty. There's so much beauty out there in this process, this whole process of building this nest, this, this construction, this weaving, is building the bed of new life. And that's just awesome. It's so good. In fact, I think I've got a song. If you're if you're listening on the radio, I'll play a song that reminds that this sort of sort of reminds me of. But if you're listening at home on your podcast or out of range for CFRU, um, if you're not listening on the CFRU, or if maybe you're listening in the archives on CFRU.ca, then you'll get to hear the song. But podcast folks, sorry. The rights are different on the podcast, so I can't quite do it, but maybe some other time. If you have any feedback or ideas for the show, any ideas uh, for future shows or critiques of the show, please let me know to know the land at gmail.com. Again, you can hit me up on Instagram uh, at to know the land. Uh, the website is www.tonowtheland.com. Again, I'll be listing the names of the books. But again, it was Stokes' Guide to Bird Behavior, Volume 3, Birds of Forest Yard and Thicket by John Eastman, Life Histories of North American Birds of Prey by Arthur Cleveland Bent, A Quick Note from A Field Guide to North American Bird Nest by Casey McFarland, Matthew Mangello, David Moskowitz, and Forest Raptors and Their Nests in Central Ontario. Um by Candide Zuba and Brian Naylor put up by the government of Ontario. And I'll have these listed and maybe some of them, or at least the forest raptors, I think I can list to a PDF if anybody wants to look at it. I almost forgot to mention that if folks want to support the show, if you want to donate to the show, if you have extra cash, who's got extra cash? If you've got extra cash laying around, feel free. Uh, you can go to toknowtheland.com forward slash donate and check out that uh, we have a PayPal account and there is a Patreon account. Thank you to the folks on the Patreon. I really appreciate that. Um, thank you to folks who use the PayPal. That's also good. Let me know if you have any problems. One person did. Thank you, Nancy. I appreciate that a lot. You've given so much already. Um, also, I noticed that there was a review on Apple Podcasts of the show. Someone give it a five out of five. That's awesome. If you want to leave reviews of the show on whatever podcasting service that you use, please do. Please do. I don't even know about them. I never find them. I don't listen to podcasts that much. This started as a radio show. Um, but yeah, if you want to support the show in whatever way feels good for you, telling your friends, sharing at, at your local naturalist meetings, um, telling your tracker crew, whatever works. Let them know I appreciate it. That's it. That's all. Take care.